Um, oh, whoops. Okay, so I'm going to go. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of Imagining Podcast. The show is about the creative process and creating podcasts. I'm your host, Beryl, and I'm here with my co-host, Andy. We're here today to speak with our first very special guest, Rachel Mendelson. Rachel Mendelson is an LA-based graphic designer and art director. She has worked across fields of education, nonprofit, art, and tech. She also runs a design and curatorial project called Bad Language and maintains what she calls a very inconsistent And I should also add, I've known you, Rachel, now for almost 10 years, going back to New York when you were a student at Cooper, uh, organizing some like awesome art shows with international artists. And I spent most of my time in awe of someone who was so young with such an ability for uh, putting things out into the world. Um, when I was mostly wandering in and out of buildings with a notebook, um, I've always been super impressed by your dedication to putting other artists forward. And I know that's true in your artwork, but also carried into your uh, work work when you're working for a nonprofit that was all about publication, uh, publishing teenage writers from low income communities and communities of color who are traditionally less exposed to art program. So that first bit that Beryl read was Mendelssohn's or Rachel Mendelssohn's uh, own introduction to herself, her own biography she provided for us. And that is my little add on. Um, so thank you, Rachel, for joining. Um, thank you guys. You're making me sound so much cooler than I am. Thank you. So yeah, to maybe just kick things off, I um, want to introduce everyone to your art practice known as Bad Language. And maybe just to begin, you can explain uh, how Bad Language came about and how it has changed over time. And, and maybe right today at this moment, how you would describe it. It initially came out of kind of my own obsession with words and language. I think as a graphic designer, it's something I'm dealing with all the time, words and type. And my father was an English teacher and I've always loved reading and literature and languages and all that stuff. And, and I think we're in a moment right now where language is extremely important. And I mean, it always is, but in a, in a pre-election era, it's pretty, pretty important. And I was using a lot of language in my studio work in college um, as like the actual content of my fine art, I think. So when I decided to start calling this thing bad language, it was like a reflection of sort of that previous work and, and like a prompt to myself to formalize how I might make work moving ahead. Um, and I think I'm, I'm mostly interested in like how we misuse language, right. And how that has such a crazy ripple effect on so many things. I guess I wonder if you could pinpoint a moment in time when, when it really came together uh, or materialized in your head, bad language. And then if there's any sense of it changing over time, we're, I'm curious about like that change. Yeah, I think, I think it really like, like I gave it a name and was like, this is what I'm doing when I actually, when I moved back to LA a couple of years ago, I was like just back in my hometown and was suddenly like on the road all the time staring at vanity plates and traffic which are like hilarious distillations of 
of the drivers who choose them. And there's so much judgment involved as a viewer, which is really entertaining. And I think the biggest shift was like not walking through my city anymore. So switching from New York to LA and, and it, it just really changed the type of language and stimuli I was taking in on a daily basis and what I was exposed to. So I think at that moment I was also unemployed and reading a lot more and and then, as you mentioned, started working for this nonprofit that was publishing student writing. So, so suddenly I was just in this like 180 version of, of words pretty much. Mm -hmm. And at that, I think, you know, my peripheral vision on that stuff just shifted. And at the same time, Trump was elected and I was trying to reckon with, I think, sort of drowning in political language that was causing me so much anxiety. So I needed something to like process all these huge changes. Um, and I think for me, it's a way to sort of process like social phenomena. So like, uh, I don't know, putting things through a language lens just helps me abate my own fear about things, if that makes sense. Uh, I think it's just become sort of a documentation of like things I'm learning along the way. And I, I don't know that it's changed drastically. Like originally, maybe it was more... I'm collecting things, I'm reading things, I'm learning about things, and I'm putting them into like a visualized form so as to mark that I did that and move on. But um, I think it's sort of evolved into a more collaborative practice and sort of an excuse for me to like do whatever I want and get in touch with people about potentially making work together. I'm curious to hear more about your relationship to language and the title bad language because bad mm -hmm. could imply so many different things and i i'm curious to hear how you define bad and what sort of bad language you're most attracted to for me like the way i would define it is a little convoluted but i think it's sort of an exploration of like the human condition to constantly alter and misuse the spoken and written word mm -hmm. and and how that's actually a good thing or an entertaining thing at the very least um but i think this idea that it can be manipulated makes it bad by nature right it's not good it's not solid it's not concrete um but instead that it's it's this really nebulous space that we function in I heard you refer to yourself in the third person. I'm just curious if you think of bad language as a pen name of sorts, or if not, do you have one? I think, uh, I think of it really as like a title of this very specific side hustle I'm running, which is not a hustle that makes me any money or anything. It's just, I think it really is the title of the project. And I would want the things that I make within bad language to be credited to me and then the things that I'm working on with other people to be credited to them or appropriately. Mm -hmm. um, I think for like my professional life and my personal art practice, I definitely go by my given name um, because I think it's important to like build equity in your name as a independent female maker mm -hmm. of things. Um, and also people call me Mendy because it's my nickname and sometimes what I call my studio practice, my studio practice being my like freelance design practice. So, uh, yeah, I don't think I have an alias or a pen name. I think I want it to be me. Yeah, that actually sort of brings me to the next question, which is uh, for someone like you who has so many different 
avenues of expression. What is the distinction between like creative output, something you're putting out in the world and creative practice? Mm -hmm. This one stumped me a little bit. I mean, I think, I think that practice precedes output. If that's fair to say, I think a practice is, or my creative practice is like ritualistic and comes in a lot of different forms. So if that's like research or sketching or iterating, it's kind of like a lifestyle, right? And hopefully how I'm engaging with the world each day and how I'm taking in my environment and how I cook and I don't know, all those things and output I really see as sort of the quote unquote tangible results of those, of that practice. So um, yeah, sort of what, what comes of that. It may not always be a final form either, but I think I would also call what I do in my day job, like creative output, because I'm using creative tools, I guess, to do it, but something is realized at the end of the day. So that would be my distinction, but they're very linked. Would you say, so just hearing that, like, makes me think of like, that the practice reminds me more of like a Buddhist type thing, like how you're living day to day. But when you say output it, I'm curious, like what your thought is about its space in a capitalist structure. Do you think about that at all? All the time. I think, I think also just like as an artist, you're really critical or my artist part of my brain is, is always really critical of that, right? Because throughout history, art has been appropriated and remade and, and capitalized upon and artists are capitalized upon. So it's, it's, it's a really problematic area, but also you're reckoning with the fact that you, the general you, we are reckoning with the fact that we live in a capitalistic uh, country and how do I do that conscientiously and how do I do that with like little negative impact? And I think in some ways too, that's why I tend to separate like my various projects and creative outputs um, as very different things in my brain. So like hmm. I work a job, I make work separate from that. I think everything feeds everything, but um, I think yeah, it's something I'm really battling with right now. And I'm, I also happen to be in a Marxist reading group right now <laughs> during the pandemic. And we're reading Capital like a couple chapters at a time and, and trying to understand it as like lay people, right? Like we're not economists. Um, making communism look pretty good. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where we're, what we're going to do with it just yet. But I think it's making everyone sort of question like, how could we live a less capitalistic lifestyle given the the parameters that we have? And one of the guys, I have to, I forget his last name. I want to credit him though, because it was a really interesting thought. He said that in a Marxist point of view, we are actually all the communists. We're doing it right already, right? Because we're not billionaires running specific projects or directly reaping the benefits of, of, exploitation of other people and I was like well that's a nice thought I don't think it's actually true but apparently we're doing the right thing you guys so I mean we are that's reassuring yeah <laughs> within the confines of this this great America <laughs> I'm so interested to hear you speak a little bit more about this idea of like 
micro organizing your your different creative practices from your day-to-day life but I mean you said that they all feed into one another so I guess I'm could you talk a little bit more about like how do you put yourself in a different frame of mind when you're trying to do your creative practice how do you situate yourself that's a really interesting question I think I think that I do. I mean, I think I'm physically in a different space, right? And what's been very confusing about pandemic version of making anything is that I'm working my nine to five in the same environment where I'm trying to make creative work where previously that had been separated, right? Just physically, they were different spaces, kind of went into each with a different mental state. Um, And I think they feed each other because I do work in the media that I make my personal work in, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm using the same software, I'm using the same tools um, to do that work. So that's why I think they feed into each other. Um, But I think I approach my my artwork, uh, my creative practice with, with, way more like conceptual thinking and way more um, research and development. And that might be like a, a time thing, right? Like with work, things are quicker, they're faster. They don't require as much in-depth thinking, although I'm sure my boss would hate to hear that if, if uh, <laughs> they listen to this. But I think, you know, I can sort of, I can execute things differently in a in a graphic design professional setting than I do with my own work because my own work is about exploring something. And so it takes on 50 manifestations before it's what I would call like finished. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That sort of reminds me also of this like issue of capitalist confines versus artistic practice Mm -hmm. where the work, even though it is graphic design, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. history of art, uh, it's still, defined by the corporation and the need to produce. Yeah. And I think it's like a personal hangup of mine too. If like graphic design has this extreme trade history, like it wasn't, it's not painting, it's not sculpture. Um, and those are things that I've made work in. Those are media that I've made work in as well, but design is sort of my, that's like where I can really jam, you know? And so I think for me, it's like a personal um separation that helps me be like this is art this is serving the capitalist society and (laughs) even though the same thing like compartmentalizing i don't know it like justifies it in my own mind of why i'm putting effort into that thing to begin with i just it's design is like really problematic for me in some ways but it's also like what i do so i think a lot of that is an internal process probably of this is okay. This is art. You can, you can go wild here, you know? So the, we should also tell listeners, and I don't know if we did earlier, but part of how bad language has materialized is an actual publication. Uh, The first one you released was all of your own writing, but the upcoming edition is primarily going to be filled by artists working in different mediums. Uh, And earlier this year you did a, in Seder inspired Zoom presentation that <laughs> that was sort of an archived exploration of Jewishness and what it means to you. 
Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious how you situate your work within a space of collaboration uh, and curation. And is there some sort of, uh, are the two related? Yes. Yes. What if that was just my answer? Like, yep, that's all you get. <laughs> Podcast over. <laughs> Podcast over. Thanks for coming. Um, I think that that one begets the other, right? And so um, in the case of my book, part of this too, I think, is just me testing out these ideas and these roles a little bit. Like, can I do it? Are people going to be willing to collaborate with me? Like, could I curate a book? Is that even something I'm capable of doing? Um, so it's sort of like, you know, what, what's my personal challenge to myself? But I think for um, the second volume, which will be like a collection of other people's work, um, I reached out to very specific people, you included, Andy, um, to respond to a prompt that I had created. And I think it's collaborative in that like I want to work with other people to explore this topic of bad language and learn their interpretations because through that we all learn more right and as a concept I I can define bad language in the way that I started it but what does that mean to other people and how is it internalized and I don't want to brag but I feel like I know a lot of creative (laughs) intelligent people and it seemed like a good starting point so like if we could just start a dialogue about this um, and then we can visually represent it. So I think the a difference for me too is like the first volume was, yes, it was like my writing, but every piece of writing was paired with a piece of graphic design that I had made around the same time that I did the piece of writing. Um, so it seemed very designy to me in that sense. Um, and this one, I kind of wanted to remove the option for longer text. Like how do you define bad language without words? And and relying on some sort of long verbose explanation of what that is. Um, and just like reduce it to an image. Cause I think part of this too is part of our manipulation of language is how we reduce it to pictures. And you know, that's a, that's a process that's thousands of years old. If we look back at like hieroglyphics and things like that. So um, yeah, it was like, cool, let's have a conversation. And, and I think the designer in me is all about communicating an idea. So I felt like I could, provide the vehicle, right? Like technically as an organizer and layout maker, I can make the physical book um, and let other people sort of do the the brain exploration this time. And that is really collaborative. I don't think any of the work professional or personal that I do is ever really done alone, right? So if I'm doing research or working with other people, it's important for me to honor that. But um, in terms of curation, like I definitely chose specific people and pacing um, that falls under like the bad language umbrella. And, and, and then I'm, I'm selecting and contextualizing those submissions as well. So it might be a huge flop. <laughs> That's like part of the, the exploration. Oh, don't tell but, me that I'm in there. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like it might not go beyond the, the, 30 people that contributed to it right but we made something and and I'm excited to get it printed because I think the way that I've now put it together is it it looks cool to me so I hope that appeals to yeah, I'm <laughs> some, excited. Other, some other brains um and then in terms of the the Seder talk ooh, that was loaded um I I think 
something you guys had previously asked me was like, was that the first time I kind of presented that to an audience? And I think in a public way it was, which is very apparent in the recording <laughs> of that whole thing. And it was a hyper-specific focus on Jewish examples, um, as you mentioned, and, and very long-winded. So I think to that end, it was a really good exercise for me of, of knowing sort of that this, this battling project can, can take a lot of different formats. So even putting it into like a lecture style format was new to me and, and was really good. Although, you know, I think with some editing, it could be a lot better. Um, and for me at the, the time that I was asked to give that presentation, it was like right after Passover and I'm Jewish. So I was like, what if, what if some of the stuff I've been looking at actually is speaking to a larger idea about like, I think my focus was like Jewish humor, you know? And what does that mean? And that's, that's a rabbit hole that people spend a lifetime going down. So um, it's all collaboration and curation. And, and I would actually love to pose that question back to you guys of like how you might view bad lang under those two titles as it were as like Beryl with your background and like doing what you do. I don't know. I'm, I'm here for notes as well. <laughs> it's it's interesting to hear you speak about um, your practice as being largely about collaboration. The f the first edition, um, twenty stories, which Andy mentioned, mm -hmm. and you spoke about, um, comprises writing of yours mm -hmm. from your twenties, and I most people's writing practices are quite solitary. I don't know if that's true mm. for you, but like um, when I was reading it, I envisioned you th writing this in your personal space um, over the mm -hmm. course of your 20s. Um, and it feels like the writing feels like journalistic in some cases. Mm -hmm. In some cases, it feels like reflections on um relationships with friends relationships with partners um poetry like it it has all these different feelings in the text and so yeah i i guess i wonder for that first edition did like how do you see collaboration operating in it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think everything you said is super true and exactly how that thing came to be <laughs> but I I think in like a, in an abstract sense I think every person that I wrote about was like my life collaborator right like these mm -hmm. are people that I shared experiences with and they had an impact on me so much so that I I felt the need to go home and write them in private but I think in the I think that that part of it was quite solitary. And the impetus to make this was like, I'm turning 30, I'm freaking out. Oh my God, I wrote a lot this whole time. I lived in New York, like what's going on there? And sort of started looking through those things. And a lot of the artwork that's in the book um, was made during my time in college and with other people. And I think I think the true collaboration in the sense that we're trying to talk about it came in the, in the making of the book itself. So I had two friends do edits on the text. So have it go through a series of like, you know, editorial styling um, mm -hmm. through two of my friends who had lived in New York at the same time and then moved back to LA at a similar time. Um, 
And I had a friend go through, although we didn't catch every error, which will haunt me till the end of time, but, um, bad language. I know, exactly. Exactly. That's what, it leaves me tons of room for error. That's why I'm actually doing this. Um, and I had a former mentor sort of look through the layout and, and work with me on that. So I think I made the practice of making it a formal book because that was never the intention of these writings. These were like journalistic things that I saw a through line in that I could, you know, sort of make this time capsule, but that's the part I couldn't do alone. And I needed mm-hmm. objective, objective voices in that process to help shape it into what it became as a book. Cause that's not, that's not what it started out as. And I love that it's a book. I love that it's a printed page. And you've, I mean, in addition to this 20 stories booklet, um, you know, I've received from you in the mail um, other printed material. And so mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that so much because so much of our lives are lived now digitally. Mm-hmm. So to like, like I'm sitting here, speaking with you and holding the book and feeling the texture of the paper that you selected and able to flip through it and feel, you know, the energy of it in some ways. Mm -hmm. I feel so Um, vulnerable. (laughs) (laughs) No, and it's true. And I love that stuff. Like I love an analog thing. I love a tangible thing. And that I, you know, I dabble in the world of ephemera. Like that is, even the digital versions of that right nowadays. But I think it's so important um, to materialize this stuff, even if for my own vanity, like, yeah, I made a book, but it was funny because at the same time I was working in a nonprofit telling all these kids, like your words are important. Like you should be published. Let me help you elevate those things and put them into a design format and give you a printed book. And it, it like changed things for them. It changed their perspective. And I think for me, as a formal like creative process, it changed, you know, it changed me and changed how I look at my own writing. And and then in this next issue, how I'm looking at submissions from other people. Mm -hmm. I love a Christmas mailer too. I'm not going to lie. A holiday, (laughs) non-denominational as a, as a Jewish Buddhist Catholic raised individual, I like to mesh everything and I think writing for me as a practice is a really, uh, it's like how I digest things, right? Like it's just, you know, the holiday thing I send every year is like, this is a bookmarker for the end of the year and beginning of a new one. So let's memorialize that on paper somehow. How do you see that? Like, so in talking about like ephemera and Mm -hmm. in the Seder presentation, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you were curating an archive, but the archive was presented on Zoom and digitally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, but what you had in the Seder, or a lot of the presentation was old advertisements that at one point mm-hmm. must have been magazines or billboards, etc. What does it mm-hmm. mean that that work, now your work as a graphic designer is more so situated digitally, um, what does that mean to you that analog versus digital divide? I, I mean, it's a lot better for the environment. Let's be real. Mm. Um, But I think I don't want to take away from digital projects that like they're less authentic or something because they're not printed. Right. I think 
I think that talk, even had it been presented in a room, like in a, in a lecture style, like on a big screen with a couple of seats in front of me, um, would have sort of been the same idea that the, these are translations of something and I'm showing you the collection. It's not really about what it was in its original form, even though that's touched upon, you know, like this was a printout or this was that. And I think it helps you place things in time. Um, and now, now we're sort of in this moment where print is like weirdly special because, because so much of like what you just said, Beryl, so much of what we're interacting with is digital. Um, and, and it becomes an opportunity to be really intentional with how, how I'm using that output as, as a means for my own work. And people are still making books and print, print is alive and well, it's, and it keeps having like strange resurgences in like DIY scenes and all of that. And even now you look at sort of people, I think people right now are very heavily in the digital space, especially because of what's going on pandemically. Like it's the safest way to share information, quickest way, quickest way to spot misinformation too, hopefully. I saw an interesting, um, archive performance uh, mm-hmm. at the Castro Theater last year. Beryl, you might have sent this to me, or Luke, the Rick... Oh, Lost Rick, Landscapes. Yeah, Lost Landscapes of San Francisco, Rick Prelinger. I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. But yes. he basically archi- or has gone and found old film footage of San Francisco going back mm-hmm. as far as he can, and then he cuts it up into a presentation um, mm-hmm. not that he's presenting over he's just playing it through and sometimes he'll like make a comment on the microphone about it but the mm-hmm. what I found really interesting about it was that the audience participated so the audience if they saw something they knew they like they would shout something out or mm-hmm. if they had and a memory there this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it sort of reminds me of your like that question I had about collaboration and curation and that it's Mm. really yes he went out and collected it all but it was the audience experiencing it that made Mm -hmm. that made the night and the experience of the 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 work and especially so because he didn't film all of that footage himself right no none of it he he collected it and and put it into a new format and then yeah created this experience as you describe i think I mean, I think that's a really interesting creative space to function within because you could sort of argue it all different ways of, of whatever, but the, the basic truth is that people had a reaction to it and that's really cool, right? I think. Yeah, and that brings know. up a, a question that I had, like thinking about Lost Landscapes, Andy, what you just mentioned and people speaking aloud, it makes me think of the medium of sound and have you worked with sound before not in any fully baked way i did a lot of like sound design and video work uh, um like early in my early years in new york um but this was the most formal like to an audience outside of like every work pitch i've ever done or like you know the sort of like hidden moments of doing that but Mm -hmm. um yeah this was the first formal like i'm speaking to you about something that i curated and you have to listen the whole time um and I think it's 
it's an interesting thing for me to think about because I do feel like such a huge branch of this project is me collecting stuff and looking at stuff and not necessarily creating it from origin, right? And that that could be a really cool avenue for just focusing on one thing at a time and and also inviting that sort of dialogue where I'm kind of envisioning this like mystery science theater 3000 vibe from what you described and <laughs> <laughs> it sort but of that, it sort of is like that yeah yeah but that I all you know like I think that would be the same that's the same design when like you're in a classroom or like every time I was in the critique is you're sort of inviting that kind of conversation so if I could in my personal opinion like get better at it and sort of create a more dynamic space for that kind of conversation um that would be really cool Well, that seems to lead into, unless you have other questions, Andy, no. what is kind of at the crux of our podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool how I led you there, right? <laughs> you really did. <laughs> you really did. Um, which, as you know, is about um, pe- people's creative processes and how they might translate that to a podcast format. So we talked about your work, um, previous projects that you've done, um, previous collaborations, and I guess, you know, have you, have you thought about a podcast as form before? I guess we could start there. Yeah, I think I have, but I'm, I've really shied away from the idea of it because of time or like lack of time and lack of technical knowledge on like how to physically make that um but I feel like after six months indoors I've learned anything it's that you can figure it all out um in terms of like the digital ins and outs of that and I think I have a great face for radio so (laughs) (laughs) I think that Jewish Jewish humor (laughs) (laughs) hey I am what I am um but I think something episodic feels really appropriate for the way that I do my research because I kind of have like a topic and I follow the thread all the way till till it's no more um and I I also think that it would like forming a podcast would sort of hold my it would make me hold myself accountable for like making that intelligible somehow like cool I just looked at all this crazy stuff like who cares how about you put it into a format that not only invites other people to talk about it with you but like forces you to figure out what it is you're trying to say with that. So, um, I mean, and it's, it seems particularly a challenge for you whose work is primarily visual. Do you have any sense of like what would translate into a podcast format or how that, how you would translate it that? I don't know. And I think, I think I'm again, open to notes on that because I think it would have to be like pretty clearly defined parameters um, 
and you know be sort of like a question and answer sort of thing and I'd have to get a lot better at describing visual things with with words do you think it do you think it would follow like the Seder format where it's a presentation is your topic still the exploration of bad language hmm. I mean I do think that well the the problem with the presentation with the presentation structures that I have to rely on people seeing things that I'm talking about exactly yeah and I feel like a podcast is not that right it's a it's a it's a purely auditory experience mm-hmm. um so in some ways I see that as an interesting challenge like what are other tools you know uh sound tools that could be used which maybe goes back to like your earlier question barrel of like have you done that before you know i would love to have like a sound effects guy or gal um to help me like old school radio i don't know i think it i i think it could be a format but i i have to rethink how i manifest it if i wonder if it becomes a part of my this is the space to rethink this is the brainstorm session yeah so okay so follow me on this i wonder (laughs) if it becomes (laughs) part of the creative process before i'm visualizing something so if it's really part of my research Mm. process and sort of like here's topic x we're gonna pare it all the way down um and then from that i might actually have a clearer vision of what i want to make visually if 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 even that, like maybe the podcast is the final manifestation of that. Well, that actually reminds me of uh, an Instagram post you had recently where you made a graphic piece of artwork about a um, a black cowboy named Herb Jeffries um, mm-hmm. from the Hollywood era. And in the post, you describe the piece as art in quotations. And you mentioned something I found really interesting um, that you just reminded me of that something like the effect that research itself was an artistic practice. Mm-hmm. Can you maybe talk about that a bit? Cause I, I think that I see that sinking with what you just suggested as an idea. Yeah. I stand by it. I'm not sure how to, <laughs> I mean, I just feel like that's part of, uh, part of the critical thinking process that I'm ingrained with in terms of making art that you, there is all of this pre-work that goes into making like even a visual piece. So that post is really funny because as we maybe sort of alluded to, I've been hiding out in the Southwest in Tucson. I'm just going to tell you the whole story right now. We have time, right? Got time. Um, <laughs> have the time. Let's do it. Okay. So Tucson has this crazy history, like much of the United States, where it was native land conquered by European Catholics. We all know the story. And it was part of the U.S. and then part of Mexico and then part of the U.S. again. And long story short, it sort of fits in with this super romanticized, very American view of the wild, wild West, right? And upon moving to Tucson, I was like, I'm just going to start watching some Westerns and looking at cowboy things because I'm in cowboy country. And I'm sure it has something to do with drinking tequila in the desert and listening to too much country music. So (laughs) that's sort of like the headspace I was at. And, and so like, you know, we have the wild West portrayed in, in novels and things like that. And especially cinematically, but it's very problematic. And at the same, in this like same week of me sort of thinking on Westerns, um, there's this huge wildfire breaking out in Southern California. It was sort of a reminder that in 2018, so what, like two years ago now, the Paramount Ranch, which was like the set for a ton of Hollywood television shows and films for like 50 plus years was destroyed in the Woolsey fire in 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
it was crazy to me because, you know, parts, you know, all of California is in flames right now, but um, I was thinking kind of about that and in tandem with like the pandemic and what's going on with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I was like, a very unoriginal question, by the way, like, hey, where are all these people in these films this time period was actually about? Um, and how far have we strayed from like the real narrative for the sake of entertainment? And I kind of, it was just like a personal thing that I wanted to explore. So I know that I'm, I'm learning now that Tucson's history and like cowboy culture is very specifically like Latinx and its roots. And uh, that has to do a lot with the proximity to Mexico and just like how that part of the country was formed. And um, I had also recently read this article about the Compton Cowboys in LA, which is like mm -hmm. current day black cowboys and there's like all these equestrian programs in South LA that began as like anti-gang activities, like after school activities. Um, another weird thread. So this is how my brain works. And, and I was like, what happens? I'm thinking about all these Westerns and like in LA, we have like the Will Rogers state park. We have the Gene Autry park and museum. Like what happens to these like fake real cowboys at the end of their lives? And especially these characters who like whose entire careers are defined by like one genre um and so i have all these questions like floating around my head and i was like i want to make cyanotypes because i'm like in a really sunny part of the country and that's really good for developing these like photographic prints um so these are like the varying thoughts going around my head so the thing that i showed on that instagram post was uh, like a screenshot of the negative that I was making to make the cyanotype, cyanotype later, which is like a graveyard of all of the cowboy actors that died at the end of their careers in Los Angeles. So it's like a closed group of like 30 actors who were like really big Western stars, but all died in LA. That was like my criteria for putting them in this piece. Um, so it's super convoluted, but in that research, I there were only three or four black actors who had portrayed cowboys and Herb Jeffries was one of them. And even his story is super layered because he, he acted particularly in what were called race Westerns, which were aimed at black audiences, but he was like, his background was also in question and he wore like dark face to appear blacker for these specific mm. films. Um, and like his, he was like mixed race and that was always in question. And he identified as black sometimes and later as white. Um, and he, he's a complicated character, like, like many people, he's an onion, there's layers to this. Um, but those films that he made were all filmed on Murray's ranch. I'm, I promise you I'm bringing this back <laughs> to the original <laughs> thing. <laughs> We're all filmed on Murray's Ranch in Southern California, which is the exact area that was like on fire the week that I was thinking mm -hmm. about all of these things. And Murray's Ranch was owned by the Murrays. They were a black couple who had been extremely successful in business in Los Angeles and then moved out to, I want to say it was near Bakersfield, but I might be wrong. Um, and like built out this desert resort and it was open from the thirties to the fifties and primarily back black families visited. And it was sort of like this escape from, city life and prejudice and all of these things it was like a safe space so I think that I called it art in quotes because 
it was like a sliver of this whole world of craziness that I went down and not even like the final art piece, which is going to be a, a cyanotype. So, mm. um, that's interesting. Yeah, but all I, that was work. That was labor on my part, right. To like learn it all. So I don't know. But that, that's interesting to me because looking at it, I was like, oh, that's the complete work. But to actually mm-hmm. hear you talk about it, it like brings a lot of, I think, of what this conversation um, has covered together where like that actually was process and that was practice. Mm-hmm. Um, that's but so also, validating but, to hear. <laughs> but, but, for, but for me, like my experience was like, oh, that's a complete piece. Cool. Though, well, though I, mean, I will say... <laughs> Though I, though I like, I didn't know anything about like what I was looking at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that, that context you, you just gave me like sort of changes everything. Um, but it yeah. still existed for me as, yeah, as an artwork. Yeah. I mean, that's good to know. And it's something for me to be conscientious of too. Like I'm pretty haphazard when it comes to posting things online. Like most of what I post is like, work in progress right hmm. um and i don't even know what the final like let's say i make 50 of these prints like I, I don't even know what they all are yet or how they you know is it an exhibition is it a digital experience is it we don't we don't know yet but i think something that's very clear to me especially now in this moment in 2020 is like we cannot we cannot be okay with like erasure of things right so I actually ended up having like a crazy conversation with some older family friends about like Westerns and the history of Hollywood. And they all have very strong opinions, all bleeding heart liberals. I'll say that, but also very like, but this is part of history. Like these things exist. And I agree with that. So like looking at like whitewashing in Western movies or like whatever, wherever this project is going for me, I think there, there's going to be a lot of, things that I make just as like a reaction to what I'm finding out. And the the best way I know how to do that is to visualize it or write about it. And so you had a double whammy with an Instagram post because <laughs> <laughs> it's an image and text. Um, so yeah, so I don't have a point beyond that. It, it's It's getting crazy up in this brain right now. So if you were to translate something like that to a podcast, do you see that as being like an episode where you're unpacking this particular um, moment in history? Or do you see this as like a season where where you're like unpacking the research episode by episode about, you know, Murray's Ranch is one episode. Right. Um, All Black Cowboy Films is another episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I would need to know more about like how many projects you work on at once. Mm-hmm. Because if yes. you're working on several projects at once, you could hypothetically d- have a different project for each episode. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if that's more my flavor. Also because like my... I I don't think I'm ADD, but like my brain darts around so much that I think I sort of have several projects half started at the moment. So I would, I would worry about in one episode covering all of this just because I, you know, I'm like, what are we leaving out if we only Mm -hmm. do an hour on, on this whole process, 
which is why I'm like, I could see it as a season. Like, yeah, each episode sort of focuses on one strata of this thing. Um, but I think the rate at which I'm sort of absorbing material is better catered to like an episode per topic or subject matter. Um, I'm taking notes, by the way, as we talk about this. So forgive me. <laughs> and for for your collaborators on your projects, like, do you speak to them regularly? Like, do you have a a group of folks where you're like, these are my critique buddies. I call them to like workshop ideas. Um, I, I wouldn't call it a regular contact, but I definitely feel like I have people for sort of different versions of projects that I know I could call and could call me. Uh, I think it would be great to somehow make that a more regular thing, but I'm like part of a couple different Slack channels (laughs) that focus on different. Yeah. We have a couple different focuses there. Um, But I think what's cool about a podcast is if you're like, Oh, I'm doing a podcast. You can kind of reach out to people that aren't your normal go-to's. Mm-hmm. Be like this is legit I have a podcast so you should come talk to me about this <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like yeah I have I have a following it's fine um which is also kind of what I'm doing with bad language if I'm being really honest I kind of just realized this now but I'm like it sounds like this big huge project and like I'm I'm a one-woman show behind the scenes like planning these things out so um yeah I don't I miss that though. I miss that aspect of like art school, right? Where you sort of knew you're going to see the same people every week and be able to have those really nitty gritty conversations about process and material and, and all those things. So I I wonder if a podcast is actually the perfect way to, to have that conversation. And then again, like I said earlier, like then go make a thing. Yeah. I mean, I think for me and working on this with Beryl and I, I think a lot of what's exciting about it is the process feels to be determined in a way yeah. that's exciting. Like we don't know what it could become, but the accountability aspect um, of mm-hmm. collaboration is, is really appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Yes. Same. Same. And I think it's funny too, that we're like, let's make a kind of TBD project in totally uncertain times. <laughs> like it's a funny, but this week, this we, we, you, you guys have control over in the same way I have control over my own podcast. So it's actually kind of a good, I don't know. I, I could kind of see it, see it bringing me some peace of mind on like the creative front. Like, you know, you're making something by doing this and, and it would be a chance to explore different sound media. Cause when I think about the Western one, I'm like, Ooh, like the background sounds we could have for something like that. You know, could you, so cool. would you be able to act out one background sound that you would like to have in your <laughs> podcast? I don't know if I can act it out. I can't remember the last time I like made like a horse, <laughs> but you know, like what is a like horse, the horse, a uh, little neigh tr- trotting. I don't oh, even know. Horse trotting. Yeah, mm. like trotting in the background through the desert, you know, and like what does a sunset sound like, Farrell? I don't know. I know. I, I was my out. first thought but, was like, what does a cactus sound like? Yeah. <laughs> I know what they look like, but it would be an interesting challenge to it'd be like ow, because you touched it and it pricked you. Ouch. That hurts. First of all, 
you don't want to panic when you get stuck by a cactus. They're not poisonous, they're not a stingray, and if you panic, you're more likely to hit it again. After that, you're going to want to find a set of tweezers to get out the really big barbs. After that, there's still going to be the really, really tiny ones that you can't really see or you can't really get with the tweezers. So a good solution is to use white Elmer's glue, pour that on your skin, let that dry, and you're going to just peel it off. And that should take care of most of them. <laughs> that's, that's the sound a cactus makes i literally walked into a cactus some of the pictures sense. on your instagram of the cactus cacti in the desert uh -huh. like feel like they're making some sort of sound like they're personified and like it looks like people with their arms held up in like a very strong pose i you don't know, know what that's the, that's the myth of the saguaro cactus is that it was a little girl who who died and rose up out of the earth as a cactus so as to provide fruit to her people. Like that's pretty cool. That's also they really only cool. they only grow their first arm after they've been alive like 70 years. So what? They're like all the the cacti you see that have all these crazy arms are like old as hell. I did so not cool. know that at all. That's amazing. Like the one I'm looking at on your Instagram right now literally has eight arms. That means it's 800 years old. Wow. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's not correct math, but. <laughs> That's really amazing. Well, we, um, you know, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. We, yes, thank you, guys. you know, are both such huge fans of you as a person, of bad language as a project. And oh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about process. And, you know, we we know what you're working on next. It's volume two, correct me if I'm mm -hmm. wrong. Mm -hmm. And maybe a podcast. Uh, maybe a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we hope that <laughs> you make a podcast as a result of this. I know, but then you guys have to, to be it. my. You'll have to be my um, my guidance. Uh, you know, people on that, my supervisors. We're still we looking can... for supervisors ourselves. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> but yeah, I need to get volume two like out the door, which will include one of Andy's texts, and it's beautiful. Um, so I can't wait for you guys to read that. And yeah, I'm thank where, you guys so much. Where, where can people find you? Well, they can currently find me in Glendale for a few days. And then after that in Tucson. <laughs> oh, you're going back to Tucson. <laughs> I'll be there for another month. And then after that, I don't know where I'm going. I'm on this like wanderlust. I'm into trip. it. Yeah. I'm open to suggestions. You can find me at rmendy on Instagram. I might be in, I might spend December in Seattle if you got any interest. I do. That sounds cool. Also, because I could drive there. Yeah. Chicago's been thrown around. New York's been thrown around. Montana's been thrown around. It's, we're, Oakland? I'm very Oakland, maybe if the fires die down. <laughs> I mean, yeah. We'll see. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm Armendi on Instagram and there you can find my website as well as a link to the Bad Lang Instagram and the Bad Lang website. So. Oh, and final question. What would you call your podcast? Oh my God. I think, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just had so many emotions happen as you asked me that question. Um, I don't know. I had, it would have to be a playoff Bad Lang. Our, our other mutual friend, Pete, and I once had an idea long time ago that 
we would have a podcast called Mandy's Margaritaville where he would just feed me margaritas and I would talk shit about things. That sounds um, great. That sounds exactly like <laughs> research practice. <laughs> but I think we're we're like a vault, you know, that was like a 22-year-old idea. Like let's think What is it? Mendy's Margaritas? <laughs> Mendy's Margaritaville. Yeah. Mendy's Margaritaville. <laughs> Sign me up. I'm like yeah. the first listener. I'm, Maybe that I'm could there. be the theme though for episode one of the Bad Lang gang. Bad Lang. I don't know. It has to be I would like to keep it within the brand of bad uh, language, yeah. you know, if that's really the, what the focus is. The capitalist structure you gotta maintain. <laughs> Listen, I do branding for a living, so I gotta. What's the story, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, so, more to come. Think, more to come, and I think we can leave it there. Thank you again so much for joining. Oh my god, thank you. I actually had one more. You had asked me like a favorite aphorism. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to close with one that I thought I think about often, but rarely employ, um, which is an aphorism by Balthazar Gracian, who's this like Spanish philosopher, psychopath. And it goes like this. Always have your mouth full of sugar to sweeten your words so that even your ill wishers enjoy them. Wow. Oh. <laughs> 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 Good closing thoughts, though. Now I have to ask the question and edit it in like I asked it. <laughs> <laughs> like, any closing thoughts? Any closing thoughts?